Hello, and welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Catherine Troyer, and I'm so delighted to be joined by Tony Tresca. Hi there. This is a podcast where the horrifically nerdy meets the terrifyingly academic, as we explore that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so excited to have you join us today for our discussion over A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. I'm glad you added that pause there. Maybe in the title, maybe that'll help me remember because I can never say this title correctly. I always want to mix up the order of where things go. <laughs> I, I, It is one of those titles that due to the sheer amount of words there, sometimes the, the word will go in a different order than it means. I had to literally pull up the title to have it in front of me because just like you, every single time I have just tried to describe this movie to one of my friends who I've been talking about it, I have given it a different title. Yes, yes. So <laughs> for the rest of this episode, we'll just refer to it as the girl or the girl walks. <laughs> Avoid the last four words, which are the ones that I think both of us end up mixing up. So this is a 2014 American Persian language horror film shot in California, but using That's Farsi right. as our language by another female director, which is exciting, uh, Anna Lily Ampor. And... I'm I'm digging the the female horror mini package that we have have put together in the last few episodes. Yeah, it's been a very wild ride. I think it's certainly very interesting to note some I think we'll talk about this obviously a little later once we talk more about this film itself, but to note the similarities in fears among these film, some of these filmmakers, there are some really fine lines about like being alone uh, that is like that feels very unique to like their experience as female filmmakers, Mm -hmm. as well as I think, honestly, there's some interesting ways in which they all kind of subvert their fears that are so, so interesting that anything that's gone on in like mainstream horror, which I'm so excited to dive a little bit into more into. But first, before, yes, before, before we get into our larger discussion, for those of you who have not seen the film yet, well, I would recommend you go watch the film. But if you would like to listen to this episode before, uh, I'm going to give just a little bit of a brief summary so we're all on the same page. So the film follows an Iranian man named Arash who is taking care of his dad, who is a heroin addict, uh, and he's kind of just being taken advantage of uh, in this bad city that that is the name that is given in there it's not me making any moral judgments on the city (laughs) um that is what it's called and so they're living here and he's trying to repay to pay off this drug dealer when all of a sudden arash runs into this girl who does a lot of walking outside of her home perhaps unaccompanied in the evening and they run into this girl and they form an unexpected romance they go through some ups and downs as certain actions are taken throughout the film but i mean i guess kind of at the end it's a touching romance story question mark yeah question mark (laughs) i think that's a really important 
place to have a question mark because it's it's complicated and it's complicated in a way. So I think a lot of vampire texts have this sort of weird, uncomfortable space between desire and fear, right? If we go back to Jeffrey Jerome Cohen's seven theses of monsters, one of them is fear of the monster is really a kind of desire. And I think vampires are perhaps one of the monsters that best exemplify that. But unlike other vampire texts where you're asking that question because you're like, they're clearly into it, but this just feels abusive. The the characters themselves, Arash and, and the girl, they're aware that it's complicated too, right? Particularly yeah. in some of those final minutes of the the film that I think are really poignant. Well, we can spend some time unpacking, but it's a question mark for everyone. And I think that's a really intriguing and sophisticated move uh, to be making in this film. So where is the best place to begin with this film? There's so many I... different places we could start. We could talk about the cinematography for hours. We yes. could talk about any of the performances. We could talk about the role of vampires in this. Did you have any scholarship that you wanted to set up I to do. frame our discussion? I do. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm so excited. For those of you that are really interested in horror scholarship, again, I strongly recommend that you check out Horror Lex. That's H-O-R-R-O-R-L-E-X. It is one of the only horror databases of, of scholarship, and it's primarily, if not exclusively, on film at this point. But Girl Walks Home Alone at Night had three pages of, of stuff, right? Oh, wow. Yeah. As opposed to some that are like something or nothing. And and if They're you, like, this is a film that exists. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. But And some of it's scholarship that's like peer-reviewed. It's in the journals that are kind of hard to track down. Um, or in, in books, there's actually a, a, a series of books called Devil's Advocate that, that looks at one specific film. And there, there's one entirely on A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. But there's also just a lot of people who are writing about it in various other places. And it seems like the scholarship sort of falls into a few camps, which fits very nicely, Tony, with what you were saying, right? That like, where do we begin? So yeah, <laughs> there's quite a bit that's that's looking at or talking with Amir Poor. Right. And and sort of exploring what she's doing, what she's bringing to the table. You know, she's she's a relatively as of 2014, she's a relatively new director uh, right. and writer. And so there's a lot of people sort of exploring her and her identity as an American Iranian. So there's sort of that. The, the second camp is there is obviously just some stuff about vampires. And yeah, I feel like that kind of makes that kind of seems like a given. Yeah, none of that should be (laughs) should be a surprise. But it's a lot of it is placing this narrative within other larger existing lore of vampires. And some people are tracing it back to like Camilla and some of the early sexy versions of, of women and vampires and things like that. The next group are people who are thinking of this film, particularly as an Iranian film. And so mm-hmm. there's a couple of, of various pieces that I, I want to just sort of reference. One article, which is by someone named Emily Edwards, is looking at the Iranian diaspora in a number of, of films. So she's looking at A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, but also uh, Persephilis and, mm-hmm. and Shaws of, of Sunset. So there's quite a few people that are sort of picking up on this Iranian dysphoria and what that might look like. One of the ones that I thought was was very interesting is by, and I'm so sorry ahead of time, Zara Khosrowshahi. 
and it's called Vampires, Jin, and the Magical and Iranian Horror Films. And this is in an accessible uh, frames cinema journal that anyone can have without a subscription. And what's interesting is that in this article, she says that, first off, there's not a lot of Iranian horror. And there's not a lot of Iranian mm-hmm. horror because of the censors and, and other things. But right. she argues that in this, the films that do exist, particularly A Girl and uh, another film called Under the Shadow, both of these films rely heavily on the concept of hybridity, right? And so they have these hybrid figures like vampires mm-hmm. or like the the gen that we have to understand are scary because they're not neatly fitting into a box. So one of the things that she says in this article is, though a girl walks home alone at night relies on familiar visual motifs and stock characters, such as the pimp and prostitute, Mm-hmm. Through its genre and diasporic identity, the film resides in between such categories. The sense of hybridity and complexity in A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night extends to its main character, Girl, and it is through her that the film explores the magical and the monstrous, especially in the context of global politics. The chatter wearing Iranian vampire on a skateboard carries with her the visual, cultural, and political significance. And then she talks further about the liminality of it. And both in this article and in other ones, there's a lot of discussion about the fact that the girl wears a, a chatter and what, what that means. So people who are looking at the uniqueness of this vampire and placing it within this particularly sort of Iranian imaginary world will talk about things like the fact that the girl really breaks are how we see female vampires, right? And and you and I were talking about this ahead of time that yeah. um, we kind of that you had kind of thought it was going to be a little bit like sexier and more action packed. Yeah, I mean, I think that is kind of the idea that falsely that when you hear kind of like vampire romance, you're kind of in my mind anyway. I kind of filled in the gaps with kind of like tropes within the vampire subgenre that I was, like, kind of anticipating seeing, like, lots of moody, sexy red lighting, lots of daring romantic gestures. But those are more custom to the vampire subgenre rather than what you and it seems like a lot of the other scholars are arguing. It se- falls more neatly within the Iranian horror subgenre yes. rather than a standard vampire subgenre classification. And Which is super interesting because I'm not admittedly an area that I know substantially less about i know very little about iranian films broadly and less about i i guess a little bit more about iranian horror because we've done this one now but no others yeah and it's interesting because the the way that you were describing sort of your expectations i think also fits the more traditional heteronormative ways that we've constructed things so there's a really great article by shadi abdi and bernadette marie Kalafal. And their articles called Queer Utopias and a Feminist mm. Iranian Vampire. And in here, they say that the queer utopia of this film is predicated upon reimagining a superhero as a vampire, a monstrous feminist. Similar yeah. to heteronormative panics around queerness, one of the potential strengths of vampires is that their monstrosity is not always visible. And then they talk about the fact that the chatter, which covers her entire body, allows mm-hmm. the vampire to be simultaneously visible and hidden. And so, she is challenging stereotypes of passivity through the way that she is performing her her identity and her body. And I guess that extends not only to the vampirism that the girl is, but also the femininity 
that she is embodied with. It's this simultaneously hiding it, but also she is able to kind of go out by herself, totally alone, unprotected in this city that we are led to believe that's not an experience that a lot of other women are able to do. Yes. Uh, So it's this, I, I think that's a really interesting framework to begin viewing this film through is this like all the ways in which it doesn't fit into boxes exactly but there is an interesting way in that it it does fit into a trope that actually we have been looking at and that is girl cannibal horror right and female directors and, and girl cannibal horror and so there's an article by jude ellison s doyle and they have this sentence in here that i love they say Why in an age when women can supposedly do anything, be anything, have anything, are so many of the women in these stories so hungry? And so they look at, you know, the fact that we have all of these narratives where sexuality and hunger are being conflated and constricted and and that there are these like actual like shot by shot scenes that you can see in everything from Jennifer's body to Girl Walks Home Alone to Raw that you, you there are these really familiar shots that we see that just remind us that the scariest thing of all, quote, the scariest thing of all, right, is is a woman who allows herself to be satiated. And a lot of also interesting, perhaps in conjunction with sexuality and perhaps maybe more of that queer reading and understanding, so so much of it is satiated via fingers at first, then fingers being, of course, primarily used within a lot of queer uh sex so i'm like i think that's super interesting that a lot of it is because in raw the finger is one of the first is the one that's the inciting thing and same here and which she gives the little nibble on the drug dealer's finger and also arash touches her thing that's right that's right yeah i think that's a really good point and it's it's really important to to note here that that the the article about queer utopia is not exclusively talking about queer sexuality, right? It's talking about queer as in the the opposite of heteronormative, but you're so very correct that so much of the ways that vampires specifically, but also just these other girl cannibal films have been constructing things, is through these behaviors that are quote, sexy, but also very distinctly not necessarily heterosexual sex actions. I, I think that that's very important. I mean, even in Jennifer's body, right, at one point. That's right. She's, I, she, you know, she's she's doing things with men, but she's, she's literally eating them out, mm-hmm. right? So, like, we have lots of ways in, in which I think. And there's so is. much play with via the fingers oh, yeah, within absolutely. Jennifer's body. Absolutely. Yeah, just to, like, extend that literal yeah, metaphor. Yes, exactly. So. <laughs> I think what's neat about A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night is is the fact that, like you said, we could start in so many different places because this is such a rich film. Now, admittedly, is a slow film, right? And this was something else that you and I were kind of talking about that you you weren't quite sure yeah. what to what you were getting into. Yeah, I think I, I had kind of mentioned my expectation, perhaps the expectations that I unfairly brought into this film before watching it and then the reality of watching the film is it is a substantially slower film than perhaps a lot of the other that i mean a lot of other horror films it is very it's a much slower horror film it's gorgeous to look at yes there are some like amazing the sweeping cinematography is so good and there's so much beautiful color theory taking place even within this like what this black and white color palette yes 
And so I was always engaged while watching the film, even if the action was going at a much slower pace than I had kind of anticipated. Mm -hmm. So I'm already kind of, I'm really looking forward to a rewatch of this film with my expectations kind of more adjusted to the actual experience of the film, because I think some of my, I think I'll enjoy it a little bit more once I know exactly what I'm getting into. So if you haven't watched the film yet, just know that it is going to be a slow ride uh, that you are, that is worth it because by the end it definitely picks up and like, I mean, bodies are hitting the floor by the end. Yeah. It is a vampire horror. They still, they yeah. still do that, but it, it does take a little bit to get into the experience of the world. I think also just because it is such a different experience and point of view than yes. anything that I have ever personally experienced that it does take a little bit of time to kind of get into that world. And I don't think that's a problem. It's just, it is my experience watching the film. And Amir Poor talks about the fact, so apparently her, one of her childhood nicknames from her dad was Chatterbox. So like she mm. talks a lot as a human, but she says that she's she's noticed that as a as a writer and director, she's not really interested in having a lot of dialogue. And so this is also a very quiet film in both a sort of literal way in that there's not a lot of dialogue, but also in some figurative mm -hmm. ways, because so much of this happens when the girl is alone at night. Right. This, yeah. this is the story about those moments between action, the moments between other moments. And, and so there's things that are happening. I mean, certainly, you know, the girl takes out, for example, the um, drug dealer, you know, and, and like there's a whole scene with the drug dealer slash pimp and his prostitute. I mean, so it's not like like you said, it's not like there isn't stuff happening. But so much of what I think of when I think of this film are the scenes, for example, when she is riding her skateboard at night right. with her chatter as a cape, you know, billowing behind her, sort of this vigilante justice system of one. And, and it's those moments, right, that I think resonate sometimes the sharpest in this film. I, and I think that's really what make, allows it to be so powerful is that those moments are when she's like, in those liminal transitional moments away from anything, any authority type figure, she is at her most free and peaceful. And it's only then when like intruders mm -hmm. into her space where, where she, where, and her space, of course, being kind of unique and that it, she is a figure who makes her own space yes. wherever she walks because she's just, she has that power, which is so unique to watch. I thought was, yes. it's just like this feminine character who makes their own space and power whenever they're around. Because so often I think, and another, I thought, I think perhaps the title gives you that impression too, that it's going to be this film about like, oh, the dangers of what happens when you're a woman who is walking by yourself alone. And that is, that is a very real fear. Mm -hmm. And I don't, but that is not what this movie is about. It's a, uh, it's kind of a subversion of that. She is in incredibly emboldened and she is really able to get exactly what she wants. Even if that, what she wants is blood and death. Yes. Is, yes. It is so, it was so interesting to just watch this empowered tale here. I, I really enjoy, I really liked that. And I, that moment in the skateboard. Yes. Incredible. The cinematography there oh, really absolutely. made that. <laughs> and and what's neat about that and what's neat about what you're saying is that she's empowered, but she's not having to to use the tools of power that the men in her world are using. Yeah. And I, and I also think that she's not using the tools that the men in the world are using and she's not actively seeking more power. Like 
which is, I think, something that is different from the male figures that are presented here. They're all after something, trying to bring something either if the dad's trying to bring things into the home, the drug dealer's trying to get more money and go out and bring mm-hmm. extend his power throughout the ba- the rest of the city. The girl is not attempting to extend her power. She is entirely comfortable with it residing inside herself and being that strength that she carries and she then will inject into the world, which I think is just a very interesting conception an understanding of a power dynamic that is different from this normal kind of like read as like western centric kind of view of power as being you have to be able to maintain and enforce and extend your power yes and she's the only one that's arguably content right right and and i think that's a really interesting sort of again dynamic that we're seeing all of these other people who in their efforts to constantly obtain more power are just that much more miserable and or dead, right? And she's just sort of content in her world. And that scene where she and Arash go down to her like den, right? Her little apartment space Mm -hmm. does such a good job of of just sort of illustrating that because, you know, the dialogue doesn't say it, but basically she's like, look at my things. And he's like, oh, these are so nice, you know? And there there is a, a sort of, sexual charge there because you know they're they're in this intimate space together mm-hmm. but it also feels somehow pure in, in a way that that none of the other spaces that we've seen in in bad city do because it it just feels like she truly is happy here and this is a place of her of her contentment not a place of status or a place of like you know the apartment that arash and his dad live in is just horrendous right it's none of those things very specific and chosen, which is chosen and created because that room down there is filled with all these items that I guess we're led to believe that she has taken the time to like find herself mm-hmm. and then put up there and it creates this just beautiful room down there. The set design down in that scene is really ties the whole thing together. Yes, I think. And it's very different than the other spaces that you that we enter into that don't feel as I mean, they feel more maintained and controlled by people, but they don't feel as lived in and controlled in the actual makeup of the space itself, which is just a yet another interesting contrast that this film kind of presents and that is outside of the box yes. as we to relate it back to those original scholarships that we can introduce. Everything about the girl is outside of the box of, of what we have decided should be in the box, either in terms of a non-Western woman or mm-hmm. in terms of a vampire. So, you know, again, she's, she's wearing the chatter and that's, creates, I think, especially for Western audiences, right, a very specific expectation of, of how she's going to behave. And then we see that it is literally her superhero cape, right, as well as figuratively. Right. But also when she's not wearing it, you know, she's she's not overtly sexual, right? She's not overtly sexy, but she's so comfortable in who she is and how she is that Arash is just immediately drawn to her, despite the fact that there have been much flashier women in his life, right? Much more skin on presented to him, but that's not nearly as interesting as this quietness that the girl possesses. Yeah. I think it's also interesting to see that headpiece presented not as an agent of control as, and I, as I think it often is, but as a tool that she uses, it's a different conception. It's not any less like this, this element can be used in 
in other elements. But it's she herself is reclaiming the use of that headdress and is using it as a part of her identity and as part of her strength, which is a very different pre- presentation than I think a lot of how that is usually presented in Western media. Yes. And I think a lot of that comes down to how Amirpour sort of crafted her world. So in a 2015 mm-hmm. interview in uh, the Electric Sheep site, the interviewer asks her, why did you choose to shoot in America, but in the Farsi language? And her mm-hmm. her answer is, I don't think a film is the real world. A film is a world of the mind of a person. David Lynch's Mulholland Drive is supposedly in L.A., but it's the L.A. of his mind. So I think this is a dark fairy tale, and it's a place of my mind. I'm part Iranian and part American and born in England, and it's like a soup of so many things. What's so awesome about the film is that it doesn't have any loyalty to the real world, and it doesn't have to. It's like a dream. It's just consistent to itself. And I think that that, you know, again, sort of touches on on how this character of the girl and so much of this film can be so complicated and so, you know, filled with these liminal spaces, because from the start, she was crafting that, particularly with Bad City. Mm-hmm. One of the things I love, and it's it's these shots that happen every so often when Arash is walking, and it's those shots when we see the ditch that's just filled with bodies, and everyone's just like, this is just the way it is. And if you ask Amir Poor, she will tell you this is an Iranian vampire Western film, right? And right. she says I, that the music does that, and she calls it the musical spine through the film, but she says there's also a slow cooking construction uh, that the Western does. But those scenes where we're sort of reminded of the landscape of Bad City, but also the fact that, you know, Westerns and are just sort of filled with bodies, right? Historically, <laughs> the mm-hmm. West was won by killing a lot of people. And and I think that the construction of Bad City is so interesting in this film. Yeah. And apparently the term Bad City is only is used in the American translation. I believe in other versions, it's also called like the Windy City. So oh, even more explicit references to some of the like a city, American yes. cities and centers of commerce and things that have and. Chicago, notoriously yes. a, a city that is filled with lots of crime, corruption underneath yes. underneath it that allowed it to be built up yes. and become as prosperous as, as it is right now in modern times. So I think it's, it, it is certainly a really interesting setting to have it be simultaneously Iran and then also Western and distinctly American. And it gives the film yet another box that it doesn't neatly fit into. Because I think this filmmaker is, does she herself doesn't fit into any box. She came from here, she, multiple cultures, lived in Miami, then you came to California, never really fit in. I, and I think that is, the city is a really interesting environment to portray these struggles in. It really is. And I, I didn't know that about the, the Windy City. That's really interesting because, of course, that label, people always talk about, oh, it has to do with the fact that, you know, there there's the lake and, you know, it's so windy. But really, that, that term came about because of uh, the politicians who just sort of talked all the time, right, who were windy. So that idea of this sort of corruptness, even in the title Windy City, is really interesting, particularly when you think about this film as a piece of Americana. So this is a film that it's it's shot in 2014, but between the black and white cinematography and just some of the aesthetics of it, it sort mm-hmm. of feels like 
the version of 1950s America that never actually existed. Right. I think about like the costume party and Arash's costume as Dracula, right? Like Dracula. And and the way that the girl dresses with her sort of black and white striped T-shirt. There's there's so much about this film, the disco ball, all of that, that is an America that never happened. Right. And so there's yeah. this nostalgia for a time that never existed in this imaginary place. <laughs> That's a lot to pack in to a film. Definitely. I think that is perhaps one of the elements I think I would have maybe could have been more interesting to explore is I thought it was really interesting that this bad city was so devoid of like like a corporate central power or some economic sense. I thought that maybe that element might have been really interesting to explore in conjunction because it is so detached. I love that you're the way you've just described it as being this false idyllic version of an of America that never really existed. And I think one of the reasons that it is like that is there's really no discernible, recognizable brands or any type of cueing into like where or or, or references to that kind of stuff, which is very, very unique and not true of the world we live in today, in which it feels like almost constant reminders of everything else around us and how much is there. And it is it's very isolating, the fact that we don't have these other things and a lot and which is very amazing for this film here and that it because it really cuts off a bad city from feeling like it's not really a part of it is its own world and it's not a part of the rest of the world even what and whether or not the rest of the world even exists yes in this scene. yeah it's it's strange to have a film that is sort of clearly set at the margins sometimes it's mm-hmm. literally in the gutters but we never see what's at the center, right? Where we're always yeah. denied that. And so we're always on the edges or the fringes. And, you know, there are moments where we see that there must be something more, like um, when Arash mm-hmm. goes and he's helping that super wealthy girl, uh, you know, with her setup in her home. And, and, so, and he has to steal her earrings. Yeah, and yeah. so there there are these moments where we definitely get hints that there's there's more, right? That there must be a center somewhere. But I think you're so right that that one of the things this film denies us intentionally but it feels very discombobulating is the center right and i and i think that's because to the it it only strengthens the girl's contentness and the power that she's able to create for herself because she does not give any power herself to those centers of commerce that have been such masculine male dominated centers of power and what has allowed the patriarchy to so successfully maintain its hold over more western non-western worlds uh, alike and so i think it is a a really impactful choice in strengthening the girl's individual power and agency by denying that masculine center of power and commerce yes it also does something or allows for something that we don't see a lot in more traditional hollywood horror so I think we see this more in some indie horror and and even in in some like A24 horror. But in the sort of traditional Hollywood horror mold, we always start out with our usually family, but with our main characters and they are happy or content, right? Or they think that they're happy or content. Then there's an intrusion of something and then mm-hmm. they have to beat it back. And then, you know, they realize how wonderful they had it all along. And of course, that's a very affirmative way of, of, of thinking of horror. But what's really interesting about this film is that nobody is happy, right? Nobody's in a good spot. Arash is being abused by his dad, 
by, you know, the drug dealer, by society. And so this film asks us, is it possible that there is a, a condition that people can be living that is so wretched that having a vampire come into their lives would actually be an improvement? So, like, is there a situation in which the monstrosity of our lives could make it better than than the status quo? Right. And that's a that's again, I I, I don't think that you're going to get that question in any mainstream Hollywood films. Yeah. And I don't think that you would get as neatly and you don't get a super neat answer, although in the end of the film, because the girl ends up killing the drug dealer, mm-hmm. killing Arash's father, uh, as well as the prostitute, and doesn't exactly tell him about this, per se. And he puts he makes that connection in that striking, really uh, powerful scene in the car, yeah. um, in which they're just riding along them and the cat. And then he has to pull over to the side of the road, and we get that just, like, really contemplative moment where you're like, you can tell this guy is like, hmm, well... I've, this person has definitely just killed my my only family that I had, has made it to where I'm unable to go back into the city that I wanted. But maybe that's a good thing because he then gets back in the car with her. And he's like, okay, thought after thinking about it and contemplating everything that happened, I still think that the best decision for me would be to ally myself with you and stay in this relationship with you and this cat. Yeah, so... To, to a lesser degree, the cat, obviously. More, mean, the, more the girl. I don't know. I feel like the cat's real, real, a real deciding factor. Because it's actually, it's funny, though, so that <laughs> the camera work in those final moments. So first, we're facing, uh, the camera is facing into the car, and we see the girl in one seat and Arash in another, and then the cat's, like, in the back, kind of, like, looming over them. And it's, and so right. it's, it's giving us again that sort of like quintessential um, sitcom family vibe, right? Like you know, mom, dad, and, right. and baby on a road trip, and then and then you're right. Then we we see him pull over, and the camera work switches so that we're in the car with the girl, and and we are we don't get to have that closeness to Arash, right? We have to watch him from this distance of of both being in the car, but also we were where we're looking through this windshield, right? And we have to watch as Arash smokes a cigarette, ponders, and the some descriptions describe him as being angry and, and then he's undecided mm-hmm. what to do. And I actually, I disagree with that. I think that he's conflicted. Yeah. Because... I, I, I was not getting anger as, not, as the primary emotion. I mean, I guess he's certainly... If he's angry, he's not any angrier than he was when he started the film. Yes. And maybe that's maybe that's a better way to do it is that he's still, I think, angry because he kind of deserves to be. He's had a a really sort of terrible series of events in his life. And I think Mm -hmm. that even though he gets back in the car and even though we understand that he's he's going to continue on this journey with the girl, I I feel like that moment allows us to have some ambiguity about how it's going to happen next. So. The example I always think of when I'm contrasting any vampire text that has a love story, of course, is going to inevitably be Twilight, right? So, in, in Twilight, <laughs> of course, we, yeah, yeah, we could not possibly get through yeah. this without referencing I mean, Twilight. <laughs> yeah, you just, you know, like they're definitely better and even sexier <laughs> ones. Like Interview with the Vampire is a fantastic film, despite the wigs. Um, but like, let's face it, Twilight. So Bella 
is is constantly being like, but I want to be part of your world. And Edward's like, you know, shush, little girl, you know nothing. And then, you know, she's constantly, she's the aggressor, right, in that situation, which is its own its own beast. But once she learns what he is, at no point beyond that does she ever waver. And I feel like a lot of a lot of vampire texts do this, right, where the moment someone discovers who someone actually is as a vampire, they're like, okay, I want you to turn me. I want to be part of your world. Or I want to be your servant, right? But it's just like this immediate right. and forever sort of compulsion. Whereas this film is is reminding us that, you know, the girl may have saved him from some really terrible things, but she is still a monster. And Arash is still choosing at this moment that the better option in his life is to be with a monster. And I think that there's something really powerful. to deal really with powerful. the real world. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's a lot to to throw into a scene that is silent that happens at the end of the film. And I can't imagine how this possibly could have been okay if there had been dialogue, right? Like the dialogue would have just absolutely ruined it. So the ending of the film in its ambiguity, I think reinforces the central thesis, if you will, of, of this film, which is that we've been taught that, that vampire films present us with pretty, straightforward and and clearly defined boxes right there's there's male Mm -hmm. and female sexuality there's predator and prey and on the surface if you i mean this this is a black and white film so you think it's going to be headed that way but it's just Mm -hmm. really really not yeah and insider outsider kind of thing and with like vampires so often they're placed outside the world outside like the society that they're infiltrating But the girl is in is firmly living and residing within this bad city, and so is unable to fully break away from those boxes. But she herself is not in refuses to stay yes. within the boxes because the world still is trying to put her in these things. Her interactions with others, there's clearly still attempts to force her to kind of conform and minimize herself, but she refuses to. And along the way, she brings Arash with her and he kind of has to gain a different understanding of the world because this previous one is not working. Yes. And it takes us on just like this really interesting liminal journey between bi- binaries and boundaries. And we see that because we watch as Arash realizes that, that this traditional masculine world that he's been occupying as the good son right, as this Mm -hmm. provider, as the aggressor, just doesn't work in the world of of the girl and in the world of, I think, real people. Because we have, for example, the trans woman and that really sort of powerful scene with her and Abidi and Klafel say that, that what we get through this is not only a reminder of the oppressive history of sort of Iranian power and and women but we also get to see the power of liminality and the possibility for queer utopias and that's what this Mm. film offers right is it doesn't just show us that liminality exists it shows us the potential power and magic of these spaces you know utopia literally means no place right so of these places where anything is possible and that's exciting Thank you so much for listening to our episode on A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. This was a fun conversation. Yeah, it was It was really fun conversation. This film was very different than what I thought it was going to be. And it was 
a really unique walk viewing experience. Um, I was constantly having my expectations challenged the entire time I was watching it. And I really enjoyed it. I, I'm really excited to give it a rewatch. Yeah. And, I, I, and it's an interesting film to watch with students because I've, I've noticed that mm. my, my female students resonate with it a little bit more than, than my male students. And, and not that the male students aren't appreciative of it. In fact, they yielded some really interesting conversations, but there's just so much about that liminal space that we don't get to see nearly often enough in film that is just very refreshing as a, as a different perspective. Yeah. And so I really enjoyed this film uh, in isolation. I've been, and also I've enjoyed this film in relation to the larger discussion that we've been having about women in horror and I guess also just international horror as well. Cause this is after raw and which was from France and then Tender is the Flesh, which was Argentinian. Now we're in Western Ir- Iranian horror. We're just globetrotting. And it's so interesting to see how different our fears are across the world, but also the similarities between our fears. As people are listening to the episode, hopefully agreeing and maybe excitingly disagreeing with what we're saying, <laughs> what, Tony, what should they do next to keep engaging with us well they should follow us and or give us and give us a like wherever you get your podcast from also give us a review on there if you like what you heard it really helps get us out there and connect us with other in the horror community you can follow us on social media uh, which is in the description of this podcast all of the links to that that's probably the best place to get in contact with us. We're on there pretty regularly uh, where you can reach out, let us know how we're doing, what you want to see more of. And we will try to take that into consideration as we continue planning out our future seasons here. Also, if you're listening to this episode in 2022, around May, which is when it's releasing, you should check out Monster Mayhem. It is this interactive extravaganza that we are doing as part of the the Such a Nightmare sort of channel, if you will. If you are not listening to this in May of 2022, don't worry, it will be back in May of 2023. But if you're listening to this now, you should hop on over, especially to Twitter. You can see all of, of the Monster Mayhem stuff. And I'm really excited because our next episode is going to be sooner than normal because we can't miss like we would actually be bad horror people if we didn't (laughs) release an episode on friday the 13th so tony what will we be talking about in our friday the 13th episode please if this is too on the nose you're just gonna have to forgive us but we're gonna be talking about friday the 13th on may 13th which is a friday so get ready Rewatch Friday the 13th if you've already seen it. If you've never seen Friday the 13th before, this is a great opportunity to watch it for the first time in preparation for the actual day itself, Friday the 13th. Yay, and this is going to be our next franchise that we're working our way through. And this is the one of of the big ones, right? Like Halloween, Nightmare Mm -hmm. on Elm Street, and Friday the 13th. This is the one that you and I know the least about. So that's also going to be very exciting to kind of experience with us for the first time on our end and probably most certainly not the first time on all of your end uh this this franchise we also wanted to give a shout out to jackson who is a fantastic editor 
and ensures that this episode mm-hmm. sounds beautiful. So thank you so much to Jackson. Thank you, Jackson. And to all of you, thank you for listening to our nightmares. And have a spooktacular day. <laughs> <laughs>